Hi, everyone. Welcome to Waste 360's Nothing Wasted podcast. On every episode, we invite the most interesting people in waste, recycling, and organics to sit down with us and chat candidly about their thoughts, their work, this unique industry, and so much more. So thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for joining us for today's Waste Expo Together Online. My name is Florence Torres. I work with Waste Expo and I will be your moderator today. I am honored to be hosting this session for you. Now let's get started. I'd like to introduce you to today's speaker, Matt Carmel. He is an attorney with the law firm of Riker Danzig. Matt, welcome. We, we so appreciate you being here with us virtually and I will hand the floor over to you. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. We'll be talking today about practical justice. <laughs> Everyone's heard about environmental justice, lots of new laws and regulations coming to pass, but practically speaking, what does it mean for solid waste and recycling businesses? How are we gonna be able to comply with this law? And what is that compliance gonna look like? What is the practical effect? I'm an attorney at Riker Danzig in the Environmental Law Group. Riker Danzig is a full service law firm based in New York and New Jersey, representing a wide array of companies. We have a specific focus as do I on sustainability, waste management and recycling. And we work closely with other parts of the firm to advise on a broad array of issues on solid waste and recycling, technology providers, private equity groups, including ESG focused funds, lenders, M&A parties, local governments, and more. Uh, just really everything that has to do with solid waste and recycling. We're here to talk about environmental justice. So what is that? The definition according to the US Environmental Protection Agency is the fair treatment of, and meaningful involvement of all people in the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Basically, making sure that everyone has a seat at the table is how this concept is typically defined. However, there are a lot of different ways to think about it. Is your seat at the table to guarantee that you can limit pollution in your area or to maximize the resources that are allocated? it's important to think of environmental justice as both the carrot and the stick. And with that in mind, New Jersey has enacted a very specific and groundbreaking environmental justice legislation that we're gonna talk in detail about today. But these policies come in a variety of different forms. You can have bans on specific types of polluting facilities in certain communities. You can have really different and diverse general policies that further goals, uh, incorporate resource allocation, like the Federal Justice 40 initiative. You can have environmental review processes that apply to new developments or permitting decisions, like New Jersey's law, which say that you have to consider environmental justice considerations when you're taking action. And there's a wide array of different types of reviews. How much teeth does a review have? Does the agency have to do something if a review has a certain result? 
or is it really just to make sure that the environmental justice issues get considered and not dictating a certain outcome? And then you know, there's proactive planning where you are taking an area and through zoning or other kinds of different policy initiatives, looking forward into the future and trying to create a plan to address environmental justice initiatives. And there's many other more ways to address environmental justice. And states and cities have en enacted different policies and requirements. And these requirements uh, really need to be a part of due diligence and compliance programs. So I put together or, or gathered a couple of resources that I think will be helpful. Um, but first, who needs to know about environmental justice and when? So one category of people that needs to know about this is existing facilities. You need to consider the operations that you have. How are they impacted by policies and regulations? You need to consider available control technology to the extent that the policies are going to require the adoption of control technologies to limit pollution or limit environmental impacts to the community. You need to think about future budgeting. How is this going to you know, impact the future operations, your costs, your bottom line? And also very interestingly, you know, how is this gonna impact your business operations? Responding to an RF, a municipal RFP for a project, entering into long-term co contracts where you're fixing economic terms and responsibilities and, and you really have to predict how these requirements, how these new compliance issues will impact your business. Lenders, investors, M&A actors, and others also have to think about this for much the same reason. They are looking at it from a slightly different perspective because this is more due diligence. You know, how is the asset that you're investing in or lending money to going to be impacted? Now back to New Jersey, because that's what we're really here to talk about. New Jersey's law is regarded as one of the most groundbreaking because it has mandatory components. So New Jersey's law, the touchstone is the submission of an environmental justice impact statement and a public hearing that is to assess the environmental impact of a project on its host community. And it has to identify the underlying impacts in that community, determine what the new impacts would be from the new facility or project or expanded facility. And then with the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, determine whether there is a quote unquote disproportionate impact on the host community as a result. So, does this project cause or contribute to more impacts in the host community than are otherwise born in different parts of the state? What we're really looking for here is people should be guaranteed uh, a minimum amount of environmental health in their community. And so we're trying to make sure that one community doesn't bear way more of the environmental burdens than compared to another community. The actual determination of this is something we'll talk about, but also the detail of it is beyond the scope of this discussion, just because 
it's a highly statistical discussion of when something has a disproportionate impact and when it doesn't. Um, if you have specific questions about that, happy to field them separate. So there's also different, different triggers for existing facilities and new facilities. For new facilities, if there is a disproportionate impact that cannot be avoided, the state must deny the permit. The project cannot go forward unless there's a compelling public interest for that project. And that compelling public interest standard is going to be narrowly construed. If there's a compelling public interest, the permit and the project may be allowed, may be granted, may be allowed to proceed with conditions. So this is another one of the major touchstones of this law. What are the conditions that can be applied? And then for renewals and expansions, basically for existing facilities, the state can't deny a permit, but it can apply conditions. That's really important because as I was talking about earlier, we're looking at what are the what is the change in the competitive landscape. This means that existing facilities have an advantage over new facilities. So expanding a facility is going to be easier somewhat than building a new facility. So that's just one example of how this is going to play out. So what are some key questions? These are at a very high level. Each of these questions has subparts, but what do you really wanna know? You wanna know, will the requirements of New Jer Jersey's environmental justice law apply to your facility? If so, when will you be required to comply? How can you prepare to comply? What is the impact of compliance on the bottom line? And when will be able to when will we be able to predict the answers to these questions with certainty? Um, all of these questions are worth answering. I'm going to focus on the last one just for a second, and it ties into some of the others. New Jersey's environmental justice law does not become effective, really. The, the requirements we're talking about don't apply until regulations are adopting, adopted specifying how all of this will be carried out. Now, New Jersey has completed a stakeholder process and the state has said pretty clearly how it expects to apply these requirements. So we know a lot about how it will be applied, but, and we know that they are going to target certainty and reproducibility so that anyone who comes to a project should be able to look at the regulations, look at their project, and know how this is gonna play out. Um, that's easier said than done, but it's important to think about that. And now I'm sort of gonna go through some of the other questions. So we said at the outset that this applies to certain facilities in certain areas, when they're applying for certain permits. <laughs> Those facilities have to be located or proposed in an overburdened community, also known as an environmental justice community. That's just the term that we use. And there are interactive maps available that allow you to put in the address that you're looking at, and pull up to see whether you're in a community. Um, 
those are based on census information. So they will change with the census and otherwise they will be rather steady. The, num the amount of permits that are included is broad as well. So if you need a permit in connection with a new facility or an expansion, you're probably going to fall into this. The one thing that's really worth calling out is that renewal of Title V permit will trigger this law's requirements. And that poses a significant burden on facilities with Title V permit, much greater because of the renewal trigger. Meaning if I have an existing facility, I don't have to comply unless I want to expand and I need a permit in connection with expansion except if I have a Title V permit. If I have a Title V permit, which is a five-year permit, I need to go through the process every five years and therefore you know, incur the cost of the process and compliance, the potential permit conditions. That's really what we're, we care about. So it makes the Title V permit a, a, a big issue. Um, the environmental justice impact statement is how we go through the process of determining whether there is a disproportionate impact in the host community and what we have to do about that. <laughs> uh, there are 31 different stressors that get evaluated as part of the environmental justice impact statement. You have air pollution stressors, you have water pollution stressors, you have proxies for stressors like industrial sites, and you have other proxies like drinking water quality, age of housing, lack of tree canopy, lack of open space. We're really trying to get at a holistic evaluation of what the overall impact on a community is. Um, so disproportionate impact is a word that's easy to say, but what does that mean? How do we define it? How do we determine it? Um, the easiest way to say it is that it is a multi-level statistical analysis but this analysis is holistic, i.e. it considers the overall impact. Um, what does that mean in practice? It means that the state is, has identified and is identifying data sources for the stressors that are involved. It is going to peg the stressors to the data sources and then come up with a statistical evaluation. So it's gonna say, for this stressor, ozone, um, we're going to use this specific air data set, and we're going to say that a significant burden occurs when it's above 50, 80th percentile of this data set as it's spread across New Jersey in different ways. And so then this project has a disproportionate impact on that stressor when it would increase the community's impact as opposed to that statistical evaluation. Now there's a second level statistical evaluation that I'm not gonna try to get into in this discussion, um, but just suffice it to say, if you have questions about it, you know there are slides and presentations that the state has given to talk through that. And you know I'd be happy to try to answer questions about it as well. At the end of the day, if you have a disproportionate impact, you're gonna have to, you're gonna either have to avoid those, or if you're a, a new facility, you're gonna have to, your permit's gonna be denied if you cannot 
um, prove a compelling public interest. But if you can prove a compelling public interest or your existing or renewal facility, then the question becomes, okay, what potential conditions do I need to put on my operations in order to convince the state to issue your permits? Um, and there's three levels. It's pretty obvious. Avoid, minimize, or offsite mitigation. I'm just going to note those now and move on. I'm going to give a specific example in a few minutes, and we'll, we'll play those out a little bit more closely. Some practical questions, though, up front before I get into the example. What's the timing of the process? Um, it will take a minimum of 105 days just because of, of how the process works, what the different timelines and the statutes are. Um, environmental permitting processes generally take a long time, but this will likely add a little bit of time, although it's supposed to be done in parallel. There are some provisions that are noted on this slide to make things easier. You know, only going through the once, even if you're seeking multiple permits. Um, and the timing may depend on the depend on the information provided by the facility. So if the applicant, the facility that's going through this process really has the power to, or hopefully has the power to drive and streamline the review by being as comprehensive and judicious as possible in, in, it, in, its, in its implementation. Now, what's the cost of the process? I'm cheating here a little bit. Um, I'm breaking it into process costs and compliance costs. For process costs, that's the environmental justice impact statement and the public hearing. And those are going to be costs that are similar to other significant environmental reports. Um, they'll be more expensive up front, but later on, you know, I think we'll see them come in line with other significant environmental reports. The compliance costs, really the permit condition costs, are going to fully depend on what conditions have to be imposed? You know, do you need a specific control technology? Is it changing your impervious cover to green stormwater infrastructure? How are you doing that? And what's the permit conditions that get applied? So that is something that is gonna have to be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. Is there enough information for, for facilities for you to begin to identify that now? I think so, even though there is still a lot of uncertainty, you might be able to put some big ballparks around things or at least identify red flags where you might have to focus on this or, or, or there might be significant cost impacts. And that's what we really care about in some instances, especially you know, where this is an aspect of due diligence. Is this gonna blow up your deal or is this just something that can be written into the underwriting? Um, and that's something, as I said, case-by-case -case basis, you'll have to dig into it and find out. So what's one case-by-case -case basis? We're gonna try to walk through the example of responding to an RFP for expansion of a solid waste facility. So this assumes that there is a municipal entity that has a solid waste facility and they want to enter into a contract with a private entity, a public-private partnership style arrangement to expand their facility. So the private entity, the applicant, 
that's the party we're talking about really here, is going to be building an expansion, building and owning and operating an expansion within the municipal solid waste utility area. We're also going to assume for the moment that the municipal facility spans two related locations, like a transfer station in one county and a landfill in a nearby county. One of those locations is in an overburdened community, we're going to assume, and one is not. So for the people thinking about this, as if this were your project, you go, okay, well, in the first instance, the, the location that's not an overburdened community, I don't have to think about that from an environmental justice perspective. This law will never apply unless the census data changes in the environmental, in the environmental justice or overburdened community geographics change. The one that's outside of the community, it's not part of this discussion. The one that's in, we need to go to the next step and figure out what's happening. Um, and so I've also assumed there are a couple different stressors listed on this slide that will increase. So meaning the, this project will contribute to an increase in stress for these items. They'll contribute to an overall holistic increase in the amount of truck traffic in the overburdened community. And I'm also going to assume that multi-level statistical analysis of disproportionate impact shows that there will be a disproportionate impact as a result. As we drill down to this even a little bit further, there are examples, remember I told you for conditions, you either avoid, minimize, or have offsite mitigation. So these are some steps that could be considered and that the DEP has already you know, talked about as possible for considering in this instance. So avoiding, don't cut down trees, don't make, don't make changes to that part of the facility, plant additional trees on site. Those are ways, you know, not to impact the tree canopy. All tree canopy is not created equal. It's a very granular point. Um, so new trees are not the same value as old trees. So that has to be factored in, but still we can plant additional trees on the premises um, and in the area so that we're dealing with this at the level. Instead of paving a new parking lot, you could make no change or build it using permeable pavers or do something else. You could also remove impervious surfaces elsewhere. Now, maybe you have an impervious swale in one portion of the property and you don't need that. You can put in green stormwater. Now, minimize. So truck traffic is something we identified, PM 2.5 as some stuff that we can't avoid. So we have to find ways to minimize. You could have all electric fleet. You could use, you know, best available control technology to limit 2.5, PM 2.5. But, you know, maybe you even can't do that. Maybe the trucks that come to the facility are from customers. You can't give them electric vehicles. So what do you do? You address things in other ways. So this is the waterfall in this specific instance of how it would play out. You avoid what you can avoid. You minimize what you can minimize. And if you can't, you look to offsite mitigation. 
And there's three different kinds of offsite mitigation. Like kind, you're trying to address the stressor. Truck traffic, electrification, offsite electrification. Other stressors. Okay, I can't do anything about electrification. I can't do anything about truck traffic. It's just not feasible. What else can I do? I already have and know I have an impact on impervious cover. I'm going to try to deal with that. I know I have an impact on trees. I'm going to try to deal with that. And they like that to be done, or they've said the DEP has said they like that to be done in order from highest to lowest that, that the community is bearing a burden. So if the biggest burden on the facility is the impervious cover, then they want that to be, then DEP wants that to be addressed the offsite. If the biggest is something else, do that. And the last is a net environmental benefit. You know, some kind of positive project that is going to provide an environmental benefit to the community and therefore do something of value. And figuring out what all of these are is really where the, the rubber meets the road in this legislation. Um, and as we've talked about a little bit now at length, you start with, are you in the overburdened community? then you have to move through the process of doing the environmental justice impact statement if and when you're triggered. And then you, if you get to, you move to the permit conditions point. Um, and this whole process will be discussed in detail in regulations that are due out likely this fall. Um, so we may see implementation of this law. As I said, it doesn't go into effect until the regulations are adopted. We're looking for proposals later this fall. So implementation will probably be sometime next year. Late next year is a good is a good idea. So that takes us to looking forward and beyond the law. Um, we've talked we've talked a lot about New Jersey's law. There's a lot more to say about it, um, and there are several articles that I've written about it, including for Waste 360 that you can find that outlay some of the underlying pieces. But then it's important to take that step back at this moment. Um, yes, this is compliance with the law. Yes, we need to think about practical compliance. How does what we're doing now impact it? And how does that look like for different parties? Investors, lenders, existing facilities, all are gonna think about this a little bit differently and have different questions and concerns. But we also talked about how other states have other laws and the regulatory landscape is changing really quickly. So you don't just wanna look at it from a purely regulatory perspective. You also wanna do your due diligence at the factual level. What's the relationship between the community that you're looking to be situated in or are situated in and environmental justice. And what's your relationship with those environmental justice and community leaders? How can you stay ahead of this? Because this is becoming a regular component of environmental compliance programs. And so making that due diligence a priority, figuring out what it looks like is important both where we have regulations and where we don't. And even where you have regulations and you think, oh, they don't impact what you're talking about or what you're planning, you know, think about how that could change. The winds are moving towards further regulation in this space. 
and it, it's it's something that will impact the future of our industry for years to come. So certainly there will be questions. And if you have questions, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy, as I've said a couple times, to to feed whatever to, to, to provide whatever feedback or information that I can. You know, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for listening. It would mean the world if you would take a moment to rate or review this podcast. And if you share it with us on one of our social networks, we are giving out some fun, nothing wasted podcast swag. So just tag us and see what you get. Thanks so much.